Y'all didn't expect a janitor to preach to you today, did you? It's okay, we'll get past it together. Uh, Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you today. Uh, Go ahead and flip your Bibles open to Luke 1, verses 26 through 56. That'll be our scriptural text for the day. Uh, If you have the Nova app, there's a Bible feature in there as well. Both routes are totally viable. So for those of you who know me and my wife Lexi pretty well, know that we're both pretty into music, Lexi more so than me, but it's not a competition. Um, And one of our favorite music artists is this guy named Sufjan Stevens. And for those of you who have heard Sufjan's music, a lot of it is a very stripped-down, acoustically driven folk indie kind of music. If you've ever heard us play Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing here at Nova, it's most likely his arrangement. But Sufjan is uh, a very creative type. He likes to explore different sounds. On one album, he uses a lot of orchestral instruments. Another album, he uh, explores the realm of electronic sounds, synths, and he modulates his voice a lot. So the span of his music is very great, and he has a large catalog. Uh, Sometime last year, Lexi and I got the chance to go see Sufjan in concert at the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, Some of you guys were there as well. It was a really good time, but he wasn't uh, touring a specific album And so we didn't really know which Sufjan we were going to get. Was it going to be the indie folk music Sufjan, or was it going to be the electric or electronic version of Sufjan? So we walked into it with not knowing what to expect, and that kind of raised the excitement, at least for me. I love all his stuff, so I was pretty excited not knowing what to expect. And let me tell you, That concert did not disappoint in any way. He played a a lot of his hits, which was really cool, but it was the show that went along with the concert that really got me. It was so wacky, off-the-wall, creative type of stuff. There were, uh, there was a light show throughout. There were cool visuals all throughout the show. He did a bunch of costume changes, which was very interesting. We actually have a few pictures of that, so I think we have, so this is Sufjan normally, pretty average-looking dude, right? Nothing too special. About 20 minutes into the concert, he puts on this costume next. Yeah! That's a suit made out of balloons and tinsel. That's very whimsical, and I'm so for it. Let's go to the next one. He also put this on. If you can't really tell, I don't even know what it is. It's like a big blob of silver. And what you can't see is he was on stilts at this point in the concert. Uh, Let's go to the next one. Oh, yeah, at this point in the concert, he... He donned like an 80s jumpsuit and proceeded to do like a choreographed dance with some background dancers. And Sufjan's not really a good dancer. It's not like watching Michael Jackson. He was really bad at it, but it was fun. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever been to like an auto dealership and you've seen like those big like inflatable like flailing arm tube men. There were like seven of those up on stage with him. And it's this off-the-wall stuff, and it was so just, I was in awe of it the entire time. I had so much fun watching all of that. 
And I think a big reason why I had fun was because I didn't know what to expect. If I knew all that weird, kooky stuff was going to happen, it probably, you know, you expect it. It's not as exciting. But I think that's kind of true about anything in life, right? You know, Not having expectations tends to build excitement a little bit. Maybe you aren't able to relate to my weird concert experience, and that's okay. I'm probably in the minority there. But let's think about something more relatable, like uh, your favorite TV show. New episodes coming out. The fact that you don't know what's going to happen is what builds excitement. Say you DVR it and somebody tells you what happens, it's a spoiler. They kind of ruined it for you. Or how about a new movie coming out? I'm thinking of Star Wars in a few days. I have a lot of anticipation about that movie. But it can be anything, a new book, a new coffee shop. Not knowing what's going to happen tends to build excitement. I fear that... When it comes to the Christmas story, the story of Jesus' birth, you know, we know the story. And maybe the excitement, the awe, and the wonder that that story naturally should evoke from us is dwindled a little bit, or maybe it's entirely gone for some of us. But we're going to address that later in the sermon. For now, we're going to jump into our text, Luke 1, starting in verse 26. I encourage you to read along with me. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man, Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Let's stop there for a quick moment. We'll get to the rest of that passage a little bit later. So last week, Thomas taught us about a story pretty similar to this. The angel Gabriel, which we just read about in this passage, also visited a man named Zechariah and foretold the birth of John the Baptist. And then this story follows right after. They're parallel stories. We're meant to see the similarities between the two, that the angel Gabriel visits both of them, that he tells them that they will both be parents soon, and 
that their children will be great. But with these two stories, what we are meant to see through this literary device of paralleling these two stories is we're meant to look into the differences between them as well. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to take a look at three key differences between these two accounts, and we're going to see what they have to teach us. All right? So the first difference is a difference in context. A difference in context. Zechariah and Mary were in two very different places, and they were two very different people. Zechariah was a priest, and his wife Elizabeth was of the line of Aaron, and people in Israel who were of the line of Aaron were said to be a very priestly people, so two priestly people. And when the angel comes to Zechariah to foretell the birth of John the Baptist, he does so in the temple, the place where God resides. And not only that, but the holiest of holy places in the temple. Now, this would seem like the type of place that the Son of God's birth would be foretold, but we are given something completely different. The birth of Jesus was not foretold in the holiest of holy places. It was foretold in Nazareth, in Galilee, a place that could barely even call itself a part of Israel. Galilee was not the most respected area of Israel by the other Israelites. And there were a few reasons for this. One, they were kind of a mixed culture. They weren't primarily Jewish. There were a lot of different people groups there, and therefore a lot of Greek influences, a lot of Hellenistic influences, and so they weren't purely Jewish. They also spoke a distinct form of Aramaic, and just lacked a general sophistication compared to the rest of Judea. But perhaps what was most condemning was they were seen as being lax in their observance of religious ritual. Galilee was not a respected area of Israel. And yet, it is the place that the birth of Christ is foretold, and it's actually the place where he spends most of his life. Quite different than Zechariah, a priest inside the temple. The humble context into which Mary is visited by the angel is emphasized. So what can we learn from that? I think at times we subconsciously expect God to be working in ways that we're familiar, the big, the grandiose ways. Um, If we look at our own context into our own church family here at Nova, maybe there's some of you here today that you come to church on Sunday and you can clearly see God working at what's going on with worship, with whatever happens up on the platform, in your classes, interacting with people on the plaza. Absolutely, absolutely God is at work there. 
At the same time, we have so many ministries that extend outside of these walls. I think about Laundry Love. I think about Feeding the Hungry. Kalina Deleuze coming up. And it's not to say that these ministries are more humble than what happens here, but we're more familiar with what happens Sunday and we tend to think of God working as maybe a Sunday-only thing. And I say it as a subconscious thing because I think we're very aware that God works in all matters and all contexts, but sometimes we forget that. Let's take it to a macro level, our nation. We tend to focus on American Christianity, which for good reason, it's where we live, right? But God is at work abroad in some really incredible ways. And it's important to be reminded of that from time to time. Uh, A Gallup poll from last year estimates that in five to ten years, Africa will be uh, the epicenter of Christianity, meaning that more people per capita in Africa will be Christians than anywhere else in the world. Right now, South America is that, and God's also doing some amazing things in East Asia. Christianity is on the rise in China. Did you know that the Philippines, almost 100% of people claim to be Christians there? While we should absolutely focus on our own context, it's good to recognize God working in ways that we may not be familiar. So, There was a difference in context. Second point, there is a difference in greetings. A difference in greetings. Mary is told that she has found favor in God while while Zechariah is not told this. And when I think of somebody finding favor in the eyes of someone else, usually I think that that person has done something to earn that favor, that it was based on uh, their own merit. And that gets especially confusing when you realize in verse 6 of this chapter that it says, both Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in the sight of God, observing the commands and decrees of God blamelessly. And those are some pretty high qualifications. All we're told about Mary is that she's a virgin and that she's engaged to be married. Nothing about her actual character. So why isn't Zechariah told that he has found favor in God? The Greek word here for favor is a a word charitu. Um, And when charitu gets translated to our English Bibles to this idea of finding favor. It's not an incorrect translation, but I think it can get confusing. Another way we can define the word charitu is to bestow blessing upon. And therefore, if we read the angel's greeting with that idea in mind, it can be greetings, you who have been bestowed with a blessing by God. That makes a little more sense. Obviously, Mary was bestowed with a blessing. She is going to be the mother of the Messiah. Huge blessing. It was a sovereign act of God. 
It wasn't based on her own righteousness, on her own merit, but rather it was a sovereign action of God. But that still doesn't answer the question of why Zechariah didn't receive this blessing. Obviously, John was a pretty significant figure in early Christianity. Um, what, it, what telling Mary that she has found favor in God does is it adds an extra exclamation point onto the angel's message for her. I remember back in the 90s when I was a kid, um, and I'd be watching TV, Nickelodeon, or Disney Channel, or something. Pretty much every commercial was for, it was some sort of toy commercial, and they were all pretty much the same. It was like a narrator that was way too hyped up on caffeine, talking like a million words a minute, tons of flashing lights and colors, and as a kid, you're just so stimulated watching it. Um, and they, would, they were able to make the stupidest toys seem so cool. Like a like, little tiny bucket of slime, and like buckets of slime are pretty cool, but they would just like hype it up to like a level that it could never match. Like play catch with a friend, stick it up on the wall, use it to breathe underwater, you can fly with it or something like that. And so as a kid, I'm getting so pumped watching this. I'm like, I got it. This is so cool. I got to have that. And then they would up the ante another notch. Pretty much every commercial would say the same thing. But wait, there's more. You can get two buckets of slime for the price of one, but you got to call in the next hour. And at that point, I'm freaking out. I'm running to my mom. Mom, for four simple payments of $39.99... We can get two buckets of slime, but we got a call now. And my mom would say, son, please read a book. And... <laughs> but wait, there's more. But wait, there's more took something that was already very exciting and just took it to a whole new level. So if we were reading Luke for the first time, we would read about the angel visiting Zechariah and telling us about this guy, John, who was going to be great in the eyes of God, that he was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even before birth, and that he would lead many people in Israel back to God. And we're like, wow, this is incredible. This guy, John, is going to be awesome, so cool. Then the angel leaves, and then he comes back to another person, and we're Oh, okay. And then he says, greetings you who have found favor with God. In our minds, we're like, Zechariah didn't get this. This is going to be good. But wait, there's more. It's an extra exclamation point onto the message that the angel has for Mary. John the Baptist, obviously a great figure in Christianity. Jesus, far greater. John the Baptist, man. Jesus, God. It's getting exciting. So Mary had found favor in God, and it was a sovereign action by God, not based on any of her own righteousness, any of her own merit. And I want to focus just for a brief moment on this idea of God's sovereignty. It's a really comforting thing to know that God is over all things and that he is in control of all things. But at the same time, I think for some of us, there's an aspect of it that's a little unsettling, especially when we are 
reading Scripture. You see, we are a people that like to figure out what makes things tick, how things work, and that translates over into our theology. We examine the Scriptures with high detail, and that is a good thing. I don't want to take anything away from that. That is good. We are trying to seek God, understand Him more, understand His ways better, but then when we come across something like this where we're told that Mary has been chosen to be the mother of Jesus, but we aren't given any reason. We, we want to know. We want to know why she was chosen by God. When the text makes it clear, we're not really supposed to know. There's an aspect of God's sovereignty where we are meant to take a step back and know that God is in control, to rest in that. So yes, absolutely, examine the Scriptures thoroughly, hard, do good, diligent work there, but in the back of your head, always know you're not going to fully understand everything. That's just the way it is. By nature of God being sovereign, we cannot know why every single time. So, we have a difference in contexts, we have a difference in greetings, and finally we have a difference in responses. A difference in responses. After the angel tells Zechariah what is about to take place, Zechariah responds, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Ultimately, the angel did not really like this response, and he was silenced. He could not speak until John was born. Mary responds to the news that she will be the mother of the Messiah with, how will this be since I am a virgin, but she's not punished. And from a surface level, this can be rather confusing because it seems like they respond pretty much identically. They both ask how, and then they give a reason for why it would be impossible. Last week, Thomas taught us that what Zechariah was looking for was an extra sign, an extra, some extra proof that what the angel was telling him was true. It was like, how can I be sure? Can you give me a little something extra so that I can truly believe? There is an, there is an element of disbelief, of doubt, of not trusting behind Zechariah's question. For Mary, she asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? As a virgin, she is biologically not able to have kids. I trust I don't need to explain that. Um... But what Mary is asking is not for an extra sign. There is no spirit of doubt here. She's simply curious. She's wondering how God is going to accomplish these things that he has told her. How will this be? Am I going to be married and then get pregnant? Is it going to be before I am married while I am still engaged? For Mary, it is not a spirit of doubt. It is a spirit of 
curiosity. Mary's character in this way is exemplary, really. And then she compounds on that. Right before the angel is about to leave, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Wow. Mary, out of the blue, was given this crazy big news. It was huge And it affects her life in a massive, massive way. Not only after Jesus is born, but remember, she is going to be pregnant outside of marriage. Not something that was really looked fondly on in Israel. She would be a social pariah. In a lot of instances, it would be worthy of death. Nevertheless, she accepts the angel's news for her with grace, with openness. You see, we've been talking about this idea of being open for a while now with our campaign. Uh, We want to redesign our outdoor space that would make it more inviting, more open to the neighborhood around us. And in that way, we too are opening ourselves spiritually to reach out to those people, reach out to people who do not know Jesus. It's a really wonderful thing. I'm so excited for what's happening at Nova. I think we can learn from Mary an aspect, another aspect of what it means to be open, because Mary was open to how God was working in her life. Even with this big monumental news that was dropped on her. So I wonder, are you open to the ways God wants to work in your life? We're not talking about how do we discern what God's will is for us. That's a whole entire discussion. But are you open? I think a lot of us have maybe a checklist in our minds of what we would be okay God using us for. Let me give you an example. In my life, For me, I've felt the call to ministry for a while now, and I'm super, super happy to be able to live that out. I've always struggled with the idea of God maybe calling me to long-term missions work. I, I don't know exactly why I hold on to that. It's something I'm not comfortable with, and I do, and I feel like God has not called me there yet. I do feel confidently there, but nevertheless, it's something where, yes, I want to be in ministry, but I'm going to hold on to this off to the side. Tight grip around it. It's something that I'm working through. And so, what are you holding on to? Are there areas in your life that you are not willing to let go of to accomplish God's will for you? Is it based on comfort? Is it based on not wanting your life to change that much? Mary receives this monumental news that would absolutely drastically change her life forever, that she would be seen in a different light from what was actually true as a social pariah, and yet she accepts this news with grace and openness.
And it's with this character of Mary that I would like to begin to close our time today. After Mary receives this news from the angel, the angel departs. Mary quickly gathers her things and goes to her cousin Elizabeth's house. And as the two mothers-to-be meet, Elizabeth instantly is filled with the Holy Spirit. She begins to call Mary blessed and praise God. And Mary, in return, all she can do is praise God. She sings a song and she says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors." I thought about putting that song to a tune, actually, and singing it for you guys, but I quickly realized that would minister to absolutely nobody. (laughs) I know there's that sentiment of whether you have a good voice or a bad voice, all singing is a joyful noise to God, and yeah, I believe that. I also believe I thoroughly test the limits of that sentiment. (laughs) With news of this magnitude what it actually means that the Messiah is coming. Mary, the only logical response for her is to praise God. It's the only logical response in that situation. As we think about what the Christmas story is, Jesus' birth, and as we move further and further towards Christmas Day in this Advent season. I wonder if we are open to that same level of awe, of wonder, of excitement that Mary felt that first time she heard the news to where she could only break out in praise. I would encourage you to be open in that way, to allow all those feelings back into your life when it, in relationship to this story. Because it is the most significant event that has ever happened and has ever will happen, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God, this infinitely big being, he created everything from as macro as the stars and the planets all the way down to the micro. The cells in our bodies, the millions and millions of cells in our body that work intricately with each other to make us function. And everything in between. For whatever reason, he set humankind 
up separately from the rest of creation, as special, as in his image. And he saw that sin is destroying us and our world, and he loves us. So a member of this infinitely big Godhead was born a human baby, lived a human life, suffered a human death on the cross on behalf of all our sins, and ultimately was resurrected from the dead once and for all, conquering the consequences of sin for those who put their trust in him. It is the most significant event to have ever happened, and it affects our lives on a daily basis. And it starts with first Jesus being born in the most humblest of contexts. That is what we are celebrating this Advent season. And with a story of that magnitude, I hope that as you move about this Christmas season, that you would be open to the wonder, the awe, the excitement that this season truly is about. And ultimately, it would lead you to further and fuller praise of God.